Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com. Doorbell knocked one day and I opened the door and there was just this man standing there. I'd obviously never seen him, didn't know who he was, I'd never seen him before. And it was Brian Kenny. So obviously convinced me, Ma, to let me start delivering the milk and that's when things started to change. Because I wasn't only delivering milk, I was delivering smack and coke and whatever you wanted. People were like, he's only a rat, he's only a scumbag. He deserves what happened to him. But nobody knew what happened to me. People just knew this, that I broke the gangland code and I went and gave evidence against two murders. I'm Nicola Talent and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Joseph O'Callaghan was just a teenager when he entered the Witness Protection Programme to give evidence against killers Brian Kenny and Thomas Hinchin. His story of being groomed into gangland and his brave decision to break the sacred code of Omerta has since been told in a best-selling book, The Witness, and recently in a podcast, The Witness in His Own Words. But how has he coped with exposing his darkest moments and his deepest secrets? Today, Joey talks about the effects of telling his story, the overwhelming response of readers and listeners, and the shock of hearing that the man he put away for life is enjoying shopping trips and getting ever closer to release. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Joey, you were going about your business there only a few weeks ago and you got one of these dreaded phone calls that you hate um, to inform you that Brian Kenny was having a day out. Yeah, um, got, got a phone call off the prison to say that Brian Kenny was being taken to, uh, taken to a shopping centre near the prison that he's in. Um, they also informed us that uh, he would be escorted by three prison guards to the shopping centre. That uh, he wouldn't be in handcuffs; he'd just be, a, but he would be escorted, and uh, he would start in the in the coming months, in the coming weeks. He would also start be going on training days and overnight days, and different different. Different types of tem- uh, temporary relief. Mm. So this is like when you say he was going to a shopping centre, he's been brought to do whatever he wanted to pick up his few bits for himself. He's in this open prison lock and house. Mm-hmm. So they can request, what, does he need to buy a present for somebody or he wants a few bits for his cell that they don't have in the prison or something like that? I mean, is that... Oh, he, can buy where, he can buy wherever he wants, really, once it's, once it's legal, I presume. Right. Uh, once it's not... Anything he shouldn't be buying, so um, it could be stuff for family members, etc. I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what he. Was I mean, it's irrelevant, really. But yeah. uh, it's definitely what he was buying. But it's definitely a privilege I don't have to get brought to a shopping centre with three minders to make sure that uh, I get what I need and get there back. Mm. Get there and get back safely. Well, that's so, that's so, the point. I mean, so um, 
he seems to be preparing himself, getting himself ready now. He was he was forced in really, wasn't he? Mm. The the restrictions in the prisons only lifted two weeks ago. And Kenny once again seemingly gets his preferential treatment where he's straight in and gets four dibs of everything. So Lockenhouse is an open prison and mm-hmm. he was moved there um pretty much around the time the country went into the first lockdown, around March of 2020. That's right, yeah. He had applied for parole Mm -hmm. to get out and was refused that, but kind of, you know, as a sweetener, I suppose, he was sent up to Lockenhouse, which we don't know of a huge amount of gangland murderers getting out of the prison serve. Some are exiting that way, but it's unusual and given that he hasn't even served the average time for murder yet um he seems to be a special case within the prison service how do you feel when you hear he's getting these privileges and he's getting out does your heart sink even talking it's just talking about it like it's it's that dreaded it's it's, a, it's just like really is this happening again and it's i don't understand why it's happening I don't understand how a system is working with him. I don't know what he's saying to them or what way he's manipulating them because that's what Brian Kenny does. He, he manipulates people and there's, there's two Brian Kennys. There's the one that will sit there in front of you and tell you the sun, moon and stars and there's the other Brian Kenny that will murder you and abuse you and do things that you don't want to. And this is... They seem to be getting the fourth Brian Kenny the one that'll sit there and tell them anything he wants to get to get what he wants. Um, it's de- it's devastating for me, and my family, and I'm sure for the for the victim family of the murder. Mm. Um, there's so many people that it affects. It doesn't just affect me; it affects my th- my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my kids, and the victim family, his kids. There's so many people that are on edge constantly, not knowing what's going to happen. Like there's two, there's two people. There was two people involved in that murder, and Brian Kenny seems to be getting a lot more spe- special treatment when it comes to Thomas Engine. Mm-hmm. And personally, I think both of them are equally to blame. Both of them went out and planned what was going to happen to Jonathan, and they both of them went out and killed him. So I don't see why one should be treated any different, and I think. The, to be in an open prison at such an early stage is absolutely scandalous. Like it's shocking. It's a, it's an absolute disgrace. Like Kenny has been incarcerated since two thousand and four, mm-hmm. and in one way, it's where your story begins. But in another way, it's kind of halfway through it. Yeah. And um, you've told your story through the book, The Witness, written by myself. Yeah. With you, and then we have gone on to create. The podcast and you know so a lot of people have heard your story have heard you telling it they don't need me to tell it anymore because you in your own voice have done so but for those who haven't um who don't know what the witness is about and what your story is about just briefly go back to 2004 and to that courtroom and what were you doing there and what were you about to to do in your own life? Oh God. Um, the 17th of April 2004, I was sitting in um, my room in Brian Kenny's house in Attic Room and I was 
doing what I've done all the time, doing bagging up jokes for him, like he told me to. And him and Tom Attention went to Cloverhill Prison and murdered Jonathan O'Reilly. Shot him, killed him in cold blood. And came back, um, took all their clothes off, got me to chop them up and burned them. Then had me a gun, told me to bury it. Came back to the house, obviously uh, threatened me, to murder me, kill me and my family if I ever told anybody what happened. And within about two weeks, I had about two weeks, I think, there's a gap, probably two, two and a half weeks, between the murder and me escaping, Brian Kenny's cottage, house, compound, jail, <laughs> there's so many ways you can describe it. Um, it was just awful, it was, it was hell for me um, living there. But um, that led me to, obviously, going to the guards and going into the witness protection programme. And in 2005, in the Central Criminal Court, I went in and I gave evidence against Brian Kenny and Thomas Henshaw. And that led to their conviction. Your evidence was was what convicted both of them of murder. But going back a little bit, maybe, um, what were you doing there? What were you doing in that room? What were you doing in Brian Kenny's house, in his compound? And how did you get there? Well, I, I basically what happened was I moved to Blanchestown when I was about 11 or 12 and probably could have been a bit younger, but around that age and... I was getting into trouble in school and I was at home one day on my lunch. I was either at home on my lunch or I was suspended. I thought it was one or the other because I lived so close to the school. Um, so I wasn't allowed to play in the yard. I was always sent home. And the doorbell knocked one day and I opened the door and there was just this man standing there. And I'd obviously never seen him. didn't know who he was. I'd never seen him before. And it was Brian Kenny. And he obviously he introduced himself. Only in a couple of seconds he was from the front door he was in the kitchen talking to me and the next minute I got I have a job on his flow collecting milk money on a Friday and Saturday um, and that's how it began that's how it began it was just and for me it was the best thing that ever happened I was like a puppy me I was like happy days like I was I never settled in Blanchestown things weren't going great for me in school and this opportunity had come up for the job and I was just so excited um, bringing home the money. Bringing home the, the money, tips, I was. Uh, uh, the few. I was good at it as well. Pounds, like, actually, in those days. Back then, back then, it was pounds, but yeah. I was quite good at it as well. So I was actually mm. making a lot of tips and whatever I was getting paid for doing the collection, I was getting a lot of tips and. Uh, like everybody in Dublin knew what that was about. I actually had a job in a milk round when mm-hmm. I was a kid as well. A job. Yeah. On a Friday, you'd hear the the milk float coming down the road and all the kids would go out of the house and run like the clappers to try and get on first yeah, so as we yeah. could. And we'd run in and out of the doors to collect the money and bring back the change and then we'd get a few quid from the from the milkman. We oh. had two really nice guys, Dennis and Leslie. I remember them both. And um, I remember the smell of the sour milk. Sm- and smell the of the bottles. To this day, I can still smell them, yeah. Yeah, and loads of kids, I think, that grew up in Dublin had that experience and... I think I was quite I was quite lucky because I was quite quick and I was quite quick on my feet and I was quite quick mentally. I was quite uh, quick. I was quite good with numbers. Mm. So uh, 
a lot of, a lot of the lads would have to wait for 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 Kenny to tell them how much change had but what I would know I would tell him straight away how much change I'd need I could grab the ticket run to the door and say to him before he even got to the door in case the 20 give me this yeah so I was quite I was quite on the ball and maybe that was me downfall well and he liked you and unlike my experience and the experience of a lot of other people yours went very bad and you quickly realized that Brian Kenny wasn't just delivering milk he was also using the round as a cover for his heroin business. Well, well, literally, it was going grand. The collection was grand, and it came to the summer holiday. And he said um, he needed a, he needed someone to start delivering the milk with him. And because I was on my summer holidays, would I be able to do it? And I didn't think it was going to happen. But then I was thinking, well, I'm on my summer holidays. I'm not going to do nothing else. I can't see why my ma wouldn't let me. So obviously convinced my ma to let me start delivering the milk and that's when things started to change because I wasn't only delivering milk. I was delivering smack and coke and mm-hmm. whatever you wanted. And, and you very poignantly described to me in the book um, how you remember the first time he put heroin into your hand. You'd grown up in Ballymun where yeah. it was all around you and there was drug users everywhere and zombies in the stairwells and you know, you could see the dealing and it was kind of part and parcel of life, but you hadn't actually physically ever touched heroin. And mm. you remember it feeling like stones in your hand. Yeah, well, in Ballymun, I used to see, and you'd see needles and you'd see tinfoil with the, with the brown marks, the brown lines going up and down, it, and people would call it chasing the dragon. But um, that would be the lines going up and down the tinfoil, but I'd never actually, to me, that was heroin. So I'd never actually physically felt it or touched it or... I'd never picked the needle up, I'd never picked the tinfoil up, I would just see them lying about. And I, I remember now exactly where we were, we were up in Fort Lawn, um, I actually know the chap's name we delivered to, I'm obviously not going to say it here, mm-hmm. but I know a first and second name, I know the house, I can I can tell you the number on the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was sitting in the front seat, there was only, there was only a front seat in the Dyna van, uh, I'm sure Kenny, if you're listening, I know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm sitting in, sitting in the, in the dining van, he said, open your hands, and I opened my hands, and he just put this little package in me, in, in the middle of my hand, and he said, no, cl- close your hand, and, and I felt like rocks, I felt like, like, little bits of stones, little muck off the ground, no hard muck, and I, I was, and I really didn't know what it was for a minute, like, mm. and then he was like, go over to the door, get a milk bottle, put your letterbox, and don't leave until, you hear a drop. And I knew straight away it was something bad. I knew straight away that I wasn't that, like, I wasn't that naive. But at this stage, I was kind of, the way his mood changed, the aggression towards me, the joking stopped, that we were real serious, mm. real intense. And I didn't even get, I, I don't even think it hit the ground. And the chap, you could see him. The chap was, literally had it, in his, had it in his hand. He must have been waiting for me. You know, sorry, the door got to frighten me life and I ran back to the van and I jumped into the van. He locked the door and he said, did you do it? Did you do it? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I done it. Like, and he says, how do you, how do you know? Like, he got it. I said, because I said, like, I literally, he nearly took my hand off and he put me through the door. Like, um, and everything sort of, the, the dawn of realisation sort of fell upon you as, you know, you thought back why is this guy getting milk? Because he was a kind of, you knew he was a drug user, he was terribly unhealthy looking, he wasn't the sort well, of Well, I knew him that, before then. Mm. I knew him before because I'd see him and Brian talking and I'd seen them talking on the street and I'd, but I'd seen him around the area. Mm. I was knocking about the area. Like, 
I was not going to build Blanchetown, so I, I'd seen him building. I knew he was a drug user. Mm. So I, I was thinking, how can you even afford the milk bill? To be fair, because it adds up. The milk bill, the, the milk bills, they add up, like, so... Never mind that, but I used to see him around the area and I'd see Brian talking to him, so it didn't take a... And I knew where he lived, so it, it didn't take me long to put two and two together, but straight away, since, as soon as I put it in the door, that, that feeling, that sick feeling in my stomach, because straight away, I, my mind went to a different place, so I kept thinking, oh, if he overdoses, my fingerprints are on that. If mm-hmm. he dies, that's my fault. If my ma finds out, if my dad finds out, if straight away, all these things start rushing through your head, and then on... on that's on the left side, that's on the left hand side of your brain, and on the right hand side of Brian Kenny, mm. breathing down my throat, shouting at me, telling me, like, if you tell anyone we've done this, I'll set your mouth up, I'll put smack on a car. I remember my sister only got a new car at the time, I'll put heroin in it and all, and mm. just threatening my family, and straight away, everything just changed, like. And he sort of had you from that moment because you felt the guilt that he had turned you into, into a drug dealer, mm-hmm. and. You were terrified at home. He isolated you essentially from your family from that one drop. Straight away, he, once the delivery started, once I'd done that first drop, every, every aspect of my life he started to control. I got to the stage where every time I tried to get, I, I tried to find a way out, he would, he would block that way. It was like, I would say, oh, I can't come up today because my bike's not working. He'd buy me a new bike. Mm. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't ring you because I, the house phone wasn't working. He bought me a mobile phone. I'd say, well, I have to go into school today because there's tests on or whatever. Or they'll, ring, they'll ring me ma or so. No problem. When I come out of school gate, he'd be sitting at the school gate waiting for me. Mm-hmm. There was always. Oh, I, I'd say, I have to do that. Like he'd say, well, I, I need, I need you tonight. And I'd be like, oh no, I have to go out with my ma or whatever like this. And then he'd just walk into the house and he'd say to me ma, do you mind if Joey babysits tonight? Mm-hmm. Just it was always something, and he was so brazen. Mm. Like people, and he drew you further and further in into his own world and um, into the darkness, really. And um, like for six years and more, you pretty much for for the for your entire teenage life, you worked for him for free. You were terrified by him. Yeah, you were abused by him. Yeah, and um he used you while he tried to climb up the ladder himself. He had ambitions to be a big, notorious gangster. He was, he idolised Martin Marlowe Highland and yeah. others and uh, he really wanted to be up there, didn't he? He, he wanted, he wanted that notoriety. He wanted to be the Tony Soprano. He wanted to be, as you said, Marlowe, John Gilligan. They were the people he looked up to and he, he had, he had um he had these dreams of the big mansion and all the cars and the villa in Spain and all these things, but he just didn't want to do the walk. Mm. He wanted me to do the walk and he wanted to sit back and watch. Um, he only he only got his hands dirty when he had to. If it was something I couldn't control or something I couldn't deal with. Um, but it was a non-stop, it was non-stop. It was just, it was physically, mentally and emotionally just abuse and torture. Like, and it was constant every day delivering. It was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 265 days a year. Like Christmas Day, we were de- delivering smack, delivering coke. It just never stopped. Like, And um, all the while he fed you cocaine and... It was cocaine. He was giving me cocaine or Valium was one or the other. Mm. But most of the time it was cocaine. 
sometimes I'd, I'd be gasping for a valley on because just to try and get some sleep but even getting getting sleep was was awful because I was starting to get nightmares from what he was doing to me and you have to remember some nights I'd wake up and he'd be standing over me and it was awful like the nights when you'd wake up and he was standing over you and he'd be prodding you in the face and poking at you and or you'd wake up and there'd be, there'd be an extra phone under the pillow and it was just, it was torture, like, and, like, you, you'd have to, everything was regimental, everything was, like, you'd have to sit at the kitchen table, you'd have to ask when you could eat, like, you'd have to, he wouldn't let you use the bath or the shower, you'd have to use his bath water, and it was just disgusting, it was degrading, like, um, everything, you had to ask for everything, like, I couldn't smoke in the bedroom, so, like, I couldn't have a cigarette, like, I hadn't got anything, like, I didn't have, like, I don't know, like, all that people had in their bedroom, I didn't mm. have. All I had was a table and the bed. And the weighing scales too. The, the weighing scales and the bags and the stuff like that, just the bag of heroin. So it was just, it was just horrendous, but that's what happened. And, and Joey, was there, like, from when you were sort of mixing with others in that world and Brian Kenny was mixing with others, like, did a lot of these guys have younger kids there doing their bidding? Yeah. Um were there others like you? Yeah, yeah, well, like, like, yeah, Henshaw had his own. I used to meet him regularly. And then I can know the chap's name, Clint Auckland. I used to meet him regularly, obviously, because we were dealing with him. But the same with the lads from Fingless and that. But they were just treated different to me. Like, there was a front. Kenny would put on a front when he, I would be with him. In front mm. of these people, he wouldn't hit me. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be aggressive towards me. And people used to say things, and people used to say, like, Oh, I'm sure there's something going on with you and the lips and all stuff like that. Used to wind them up like that. Mm. But um, because you have to understand there was marks as well. There were bruises yeah. on my face and my body from when he from when he hit me. So people would mention things, that, but they everyone had their own. Everyone had their own lad, like had their own young fella, like. And like young teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Well, they'd be my age. They were all the same age as me. Like probably a bit older to be fair. Maybe, maybe I was a bit younger. But a lot of them, if they hadn't got brothers, younger brothers, or... So they would they have been 14, just, 15, 16 years yeah, of age. Yeah. And... Like, the, like Thomas's lad, like, that was in Clondalk, and I'd meet him, like, he, he was probably two years older than me, so say I was 12, say he was 14, but he had his own apartment, he had his own car, he had a girlfriend. Like, yeah, they had these things that I didn't have, like, I didn't have, they had money, like, I'd meet him, and he'd have bundles of money that would be his bundles of money, where I didn't, I didn't get paid, like... Like any any money I brought, I I got, I gave straight to Brian, and like if he didn't, like he'd be killed, like, and he would count every penny, like he was so, he could be so mean and so, he's just so obsessed with money, it was unreal, like, mm. and even the drugs, like he would constantly be paranoid, like he starts feeding me the cocaine, but then when he starts feeding you the cocaine, then he then he'd start getting paranoid, thinking I was robbing the cocaine. Mm. And, uh, which is was so irrational because I was thinking like I'm only taking it because you're giving it to me I don't even want it and did you have then you probably didn't but you may now mm-hmm. any understanding about how these other young people were being brought into that world were they were they younger brothers of 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 people that were working within the drug gang or were they plucked like you in that very predatory fashion from your family and groomed essentially. A lot of the lads I met my age that were doing it seemed to be getting something from it. Mm-hmm. As I said, 
the lad that was dealing with Thomas had a car, had an apartment, all these things at 14 years of age, 15 years of age. And they were provided for him by, by Henshin. And the same with lads that worked for Marlow, same thing. They were, they all had houses and cars and things. At that age, they had like rented apartments over. I remember going to parties in the places. When Kenny would bring you to these places and I'd be looking at him thinking, like, he's only 15, like, and he, this whole three-bedroom apartment is his. And that Audi downstairs is his, or that Merc downstairs is his. I'd be like, what the fuck, like? Mm. I'm locked in a bleeding attic bedroom at home. So Can do you I, think they were attracted to the work, the job, the life, or...? No, I think I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. I, I definitely think it's a bit of both. I think there's a lot, there's a lot more... There's a lot more lads out there like me mm-hmm. that went through similar experiences, 100%, and I, and I still think there is now. But definitely back then, I just, I can only speak for me when it comes to the, mm. definitely the abuse, sexual abuse and that, because I don't know whether that was happening to them. But I'm, they definitely got a slap, they definitely got a clatter, they definitely got a dig. Mm. They were definitely kept in line. They were definitely, once you're in, you're in, right? There's no way you. They were definitely under the same rules, the same... As we say, I'm married to, they were yeah. definitely under the same gang, uh, gangland code. Like, yeah. you don't yeah. talk loose lips, sink ships. Mm. There was always the same rule for us all. Like, you'd often see one with a black eye. Like, mm. everyone was kept under the same. But I just can't, I just don't know whether the same things were happening to them. Right. That were happening to me. And there was no communication between you. You oh, weren't no, able was, to communicate no, separately no, or. None of that. Yeah, at a party now, like, you'd be all in the same room and all that. And, but you'd. It would be all hyped. It'd be all everything. Everyone would be all talking about guns, robberies, cars, boards, shagging, this money, holiday homes, how many rooms in your house. All this. It was all. It was all the gang, gangster parties. Mm. Macho. Yeah, all macho, all hard man talk. Yeah. So I mean, straighteners, this straighteners, that. All that bravado that comes with with the gangland lifestyle. Mm. Um. Like the runners, the stuff like that. Like I didn't have the only decent clothes I had was the clothes my family bought me. Like, mm. like Kenny was, was like was was so strict. Like when it came to stuff like that. Mm. Like the only time you'd ever get, you wouldn't even get decent clothes. But the only time you get new clothes probably be Christmas or something like that. And then he'd make you dress like him. Like literally, you'd be in identical clothes to him. It was crazy. Like. When you look back, like, mm. I remember being so embarrassed, like, going to his math house for Christmas one year. Me, him, and one of the kids, we all dressed in the same clothes as three of us. We looked like the three students, like. And to him, this was this world that he wanted to portray to other people. Mm. This clean-cut image. So, on one hand, he wanted to be a businessman, and he wanted to be seen as respectful to certain people, to certain family members, etc. And then, in the gangland world, he wanted to be, like, Seen as a tough man and mm. a gangster and not no not to be fucked with. But he's definitely a very complex oh, definitely. character and um He want, he always wanted information. He always wanted especially when because I was from Lanchertown, he wanted to know the people I knew. And not that I would know them, but because I was a young fella running around the streets, like, tell me about this fella and tell me about that fella and how many many's in that house and Who's Coatsies and who's this ones and who's Thugs and who are these people? And I always wanted to know everything about everybody. They were the Westies, of course, yeah, the yeah. notorious um, duo who you knew yeah, because yeah. one of them lived opposite you and you were friendly with a younger brother. Yeah. Um, Kenny's ambition 
ultimately became his undoing because he got in tow with Thomas Hinchin, who was probably a more successful dealer than he was at the time. And together they plotted to murder Jonathan O'Reilly yeah. because Hinchin was actually in a in a gang feud with others in the, the, the Clondalkin area mm-hmm. and wanted to take over the turf. Um, Kenny never wagered that you would turn on him. He thought he had you, he thought he had so much control over you that you would never break that omerta. And you did. And you went and you, you did the right thing, essentially. You brought the guards to the gun, you brought them to other evidence and you stood up in court and you told them what you knew. And yeah. it was your evidence that convicted both of them to life imprisonment. So here we are, 2021, 20, and he's on his way out. And your life is um, very different to most people's. Yeah, he's coming home. And what does that mean for you, if you can try and explain to people? Because you were on the Witness Protection Programme until you gave your evidence. And after giving your evidence, you're signed off that programme. Yeah. And you're basically given a new identity and you're moved to a new undisclosed location. Yeah. Um, and the details of what happened to you... Um, because it's quite complex, is within the book, The Witness, and in the, the podcast for anybody who's interested in in um, in listening to more of The Witness in, in his own words. But basically, it didn't work out for you. It was very difficult. Life is very difficult yeah. for you. And you've essentially got to a place in life now where you've had a lot of therapy mm-hmm. and you have to live a certain way, which is that you have to be your first line of defence because you would believe, and others do too, that Kenny would be coming out with revenge in his soul. 100%. Um, as you said, I'm my first line of defence. I'm the one that has to keep myself safe. Um, I do have liaison officers in the police and in the guards in the different countries. Um, but that's it. Like I had, That's the information. I That's the best, that's the best, that's the best I'm gonna, I'm gonna get. You have to be constantly aware. Yeah, I have to constantly be aware of what's going on around me, what's happening, who I'm talking to, what I'm saying, where I'm going, my routine, what way I go to the shop, what I do when I wake up in the morning, mm. make sure checking windows, doors, alarms, everywhere I go, I have an, I have an alarm with me. A lot of the time when I'm wearing a bulletproof vest. And I'm trying to live a normal life and do that at the same time. Trying to walk, trying to trying to function, trying to keep me me trying to keep my mental health, keep right, trying to stay well. While going while going through all this, it's, just, it's like a never ending story. It's like it'll never end. I think. Do you feel like you got the life sentence and he got an easier deal? I've I've done the life sentence with him. I might as well have been locked up that day in 2005. They might as well have just took me and sent me to Weefield with them. Just put me in a different cell. The only difference with me, as I said it before, is I can open the door. I've been in the room for the last 17 years. I can just open the door and walk out. Now Kenny's been able to do that. And now he's going to walk out soon. And people do believe in the guards and in the police that he will seek revenge. He had not... He had... He was so convinced that I would never, ever, ever do what I'd done. I remember one of the investigators telling me at the time he was actually sitting there laughing at him. 
until they put the gun in front of him. I was the only one that had the gun because I hit it. And then when they put the gun in front of him, the colour on his face changed. But up until then, he was putting his feet on the table in the interview room. He was laughing, joking, that cocky and that confident until they walked in with the gun and took the smile off his face. But I don't know what else I can do. I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. I have to try and survive. And I can't let him win. And Joey, in 2015, mm-hmm. you made statements to the Garda Siakona about sexual abuse that you suffered yeah. at the hands of Kenny. Mm-hmm. And I understand that Kenny was questioned in prison. Yeah. And he refused to answer any questions. He yeah. didn't deny what was put to him. No. He just refused to answer any questions. Yeah. And do you have any idea where that investigation is at? Or is it still ongoing? Is there is there a possibility that uh, a file may be sent to the DPP in relation to that? Is that something that could, you know, haunt Kenny as he, as he hopes to get out? Is it something that can be reopened if it, if it has been parked? Well, I think it's something that, that's definitely playing on the back of his mind. But I think he's probably happy. I think he's happy to sit and ride out as long as he's hearing nothing about it. Mm. Like, by the guards or by the DPP, he's just, I think he's just looking at the front gates thinking, get me out of here as quick as I can mm. before this comes on top. Um, basically, what they're saying is, is really the impression I'm getting is it's my word against his. Now, I believe that more people should be questioned. The people that lived in the house was. I think his family should be questioned about it because it's not the first time mm. he's done this, I believe. And I think somebody needs to look into it. I think he needs to be questioned again and again and again and again. He'll probably fit there, like, the way he always has, and mm. pick a hole in the wall and answer any questions. But do I believe it was, it was investigated properly? I'm not sure. Mm. Because You'd certainly like to see it. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see it revisited, definitely. Um, since uh, our podcast yeah. was launched in May, the end of May, and... Um, all 10 episodes are there now. It has reached the number one spot in Ireland, in true crime in the UK, in Spain, Australia, New Zealand, the Cayman Islands. Uh, it's been quite a phenomenal success that I don't think any of us expected. No. Um, and I have essentially been double jobbing as your PA ever since. God. Not a day goes by that I don't receive emails, messages, people looking for me to send on their well wishes to you, people blown away by your story, by listening to you, listening to your voice, listening to you tell it, by your honesty. I suppose all those things that I was blown away by when I first met you in 2012 and why we're still talking now. Um, But how have you found it? I mean, you did expose yourself a lot by by doing the podcast and the book. And um, have you found it helpful, therapeutic? Have you had a good reaction? Or, you know, did you feel worried when you were when you were um, publishing and, and later broadcasting? How, you know, how do you feel about it now? I think the, the, book was the, the book was the hardest because I kind of felt like when I went to the priory, I kind of, I kind of felt like I'd done the trauma. I'd kind of done a lot of therapy in my life and... I spent 12 months in the priority and 
it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I've said that numerous times and I'll continue to say that because it's changed my life. It's given me a better quality of life that I never had mentally. And and it's, I've been able to have a small bit of peace and quiet and chew all the carnage. But writing the book was nerve-wracking. Um, but it was like reliving it all again. And I think... I think how we—I don't think people would believe how we actually how it was wrote, but it was actually how we done it. Really, was we weren't together. Mm. Like I think we've seen each other mm. once or twice, and it was all done over the phone. Mm. You were at one end of the phone, I was at the other. I think you were coming home from a full-time job. I was coming home from work, mm. going home at the evening, sitting there and talking for hours on the phone. People always say books are a labour of love, and that's exactly uh-huh. what it was. And then, well, obviously you done the hard work, I was doing just doing the talking, but for me it brought me right back to them places. Then mm. it did bring me back into the trauma and to the things that I kind of thought that I'd left in the past. But in a good way, it was kind of a, I kind of, I kind of thought I needed to go through it again. I didn't think at the time I did, but once I'd done it, I kind of felt a lot of a relief, a lot of relief. Writing the, the witness was a huge achievement. And the success of it was was unreal. Like I never thought who would want to listen to me. Like who would want to know about my story? Because the reaction in the beginning wasn't great when it first got advertised. People were like, "He's only a rat. He's only a scumbag. He deserves what happened to him." But nobody knew what happened to me. People just knew this that I broke the gangland code and I went and gave evidence against two murders, two drug dealers. But that that wasn't the story. That wasn't how it happened. People had this presumption that I'd done this deal with the guards and they had all this evidence on me and I, I was a crime, I don't know, crime boss and all this stuff they were saying. And it was, that wasn't the fact, like, that, that none of that happened. In the beginning, it was, I, I got real anxious, like, mm-hmm. because people were kind of coming for me, like. And then it was when the book got out there, the reaction just changed. Like, I, I don't think I've been called, a, I don't think I've been called a rat in over the year. Well, I haven't seen it. I heard no, it. I haven't, don't think you have either. And I don't think you've been called a rat since. For me, that's, that, that, that's been a long time. Like, that's some achievement, Joey, isn't it? That's an achievement for me. Yeah. So, um, and this, then the success of the book was just, just blew me away. And I find it hard to take in because I don't really, I'm not really good at this because these people are being nice and I find it hard because I'm not used to it. And I might, I might come across that. I'm, it's not that... I don't even know how you say it. I'm just grateful. But I don't know how to reply back and I don't know what to say to these people. But people even taking the time just to write a message and send an email and just they don't want to understand how much of a lift that gives you. Mm. I'm reading them and... And how has the reaction been to the podcast? I think the podcast has been... From your, you know, to your family or whatever. Have they had positive as well? Yeah, the podcast has been... That has just taken it all to another level, like completely it's literally just friends from school friends from Blanchetown my mass friends friends of the family that we haven't heard from and nobody wanted to know us mm. 16 years ago when this happened no one wanted that and got to do with us I was a rat and that was it and people didn't know the story and that's not their fault you can't expect everyone to know what was going on and I appreciate that so people had to say don't you don't judge a book by its cover and all that. But now people have listened to my story and listened to the podcast and the response has been amazing and the support my family have got and the support I've got has been overwhelming. Um, and it really has 
it's taken it's changed my life really mm. and I'm just absolutely and I've been privy to an awful lot of the messages of support you get because obviously people can't contact you directly yeah. so they have to come through me and um you know, there's people from all over the country, from all different walks of life, who have been so touched by it. And then, of course, we've had what was a really, you know, which gave me a really big boost. And you too was when we got contact from former Detective Inspector Toddy O'Loughlin, yeah. who was in charge of the case against Brian Kenny and um, Thomas Hinchin, mm-hmm. and who very elegantly sent us a handwritten note, sent you through me, to say that he could confirm that everything you'd said in the podcast was true as he remembered it. Yeah. And he thanked you for what you did then and he thanked you for what you're doing now. Which he recognised as being, you know, a service to, I suppose, parents and to kids out there who are being targeted by drug gangs yes, and to show them what kind of a life lies ahead. It's no life, yeah. It's no life? No. It's not, I think I said it before, is your life worth a, is your life worth a Gucci jacket? No, it is. It's not worth it. Like. Mm. You're either going to end up in one or two places, a hole or a cell. And uh, I think, do you know, I think, I think life is precious. And we don't know how many birthdays we have left. And you don't need a birthday to celebrate life, but I think you should celebrate it every day because it's fragile and tell people that you love them because we don't know how many days we have left. And if, if you can keep your kids away from drugs and them drugs gangs, do anything you can to keep them away from them because it's only got to end down one or two rows. And I've been there. I've been to hell and back to... And... Listen, I'm not looking for sympathy because probably I, I played my own part being so naive. I know people say I was only a child, but I'm sure I made, I made mistakes along the way. Probably, I, th- I always try and think back, could I go away? Could I have done this? Could I have done that? I don't know whether I could have, but I can't change what happened. But if I could stop somebody else, even one child, from going through what I went through, definitely I think my job is done. Um, just double-check Double check with your kids. People say, I always ask them, are they okay? Ask them twice. Even three times. Just double check. Because uh, it's a dark world once you get into it. Mm. And I'm, after getting out of it, yes, I still have to worry about Kenny and Henson coming after me and their associates. I still have to be careful. I still have to live a certain life. But I'm proof that you can get out of it. And there is hope, and there is people out there that will help you, and there is support. And I'm just lucky that, obviously, I met yourself, and I have a good solicitor and a good family and a good team around me that have been looking after me, especially the last couple of years with doing the witness the book and the witness the po- and the witness in his own words the podcast. I've had good people that have supported me too. So, but yeah, if I'd say anything, it's just just to always double check with your kids. Joey O'Callaghan, as always, thank you very much. And remember, you have lots of friends out there. Thanks very much, Declan. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney. 
and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Crime World is brought to you in association with Manscaped, who provide an incredible, complete men's grooming experience. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools and is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. We have an exclusive offer for Crime World listeners, 20% off and free shipping with the code CRIMEWORLD at manscaped.com.